Otherwise, on SAFM. Thanks very much, Sandra. I have to say, I'm just loving these energy-saving tips, and I'm saving. They're just great. Oh, just wonderful! It, it it appeals to the greenie <laughs> in me. I'm saving them all up. Excellent. Yeah, we need to. <laughs> we do. Eh? Lovely. Thanks very much. Well, it's otherwise you're listening to you right now here on SAFM Talking Women, as we do each and every weekday. And today we're coming from Johannesburg. I'm here together with Ntokozo Kuswayo down in Cape Town, Hazel Makuzeni and Albert Clarkson, I think, and I hope I've got that right. Well, what we've got lined up on the show today, something all parents of daughters will surely be interested to hear more about, is the free cervical cancer vaccination. Is it the right thing for my daughter? Well, we'll be getting a doctor's advice. He's Dr. Peter Cole. He's an obstetrician and gynecologist. So uh, listen carefully for that one. Before that, though, education, women making their futures and changing the world. Well, that's a, it's the title of a presentation from Dr. Amalaya Malka. She's from the University of Pretoria, and uh, I'm particularly looking forward to hearing that one. I think she's got some interesting statistics up her sleeve. But first and foremost, coaches who care. Lauren Ratcliffe of the Fresh Group talks about this uh, brand new non-profit leadership development program, and we'll find out what she's got up her sleeve. That's what we've got in the lineup, and don't forget you're listening to Otherwise, and if you want to get in touch with us at any stage, otherwise at sfm.co.vda is the way to do it. Let me give you a little what's news. Well, huge relief for Glynis Breitenbach, found not guilty of all 15 of those charges laid against her, and how was that smile here? Gauteng Premier Nomvula Mokonyani has vowed to demolish all lolly lounges in El Dorado Park, lounges that are luring children, girls in particular, into drugs and prostitution. So let's just hope that they win that war. And showing solidarity around the 100 Years of Women in Struggle campaign, the ANC Women's League will today be marching in Bloemfontein. That's in the footsteps of the women who held anti-pass march 100 years ago on the very same day. Though, according to The Citizen, it has been suggested that the ANC Women's League itself is struggling to hold a conference to elect its national leadership. Well, let's wait and see what the outcome is. On the health front, it seems that Angelina Jolie certainly made the right choice in having a double mastectomy, in as much as her aunt, that's her mother's sister, Debbie, has also just died of breast cancer. But do remember that breast cancer can be beaten if you catch it early, so check, check, and check again. And just on the subject of cancer prevalent in women, later on the show, don't forget, is the free cervical cancer vaccine right for your daughter? We'll find out. Also on the health front, I see that Chelsea Clinton, daughter of former President Bill and retired Secretary of State Hillary, speaking on behalf of the Global Clinton Initiative, has announced it's delivered, it uh, will have delivered 6 billion litres of clean, clean drinking water as part of its commitment to save one life every hour by the year 2020. And I guess clean water is what we all are going to be needing. Never mind energy-saving tips, maybe water-saving tips need to be added in there. Also looking abroad, Myanmar's Aung San Suu Kyi, speaks out against the ban on couples in strife-torn Rakhine state having more than two children. She says it's not good to have such discrimination and it's not in line with human rights. Government spokesperson, however, said that in fact it was designed to enforce monogamy. And just lastly, on the green front, squid catches off our coast are apparently at an all-time low. It's been suggested because authorities did not reduce the number of boats allowed to catch. Thus, and I quote, there are no more fish. But calamari lovers, according to the star, have no cause for alarm locally because all South African squid ends up in Europe anyway. So where is ours coming from, I ask myself, and does that make sense? What not a lot makes sense sometimes, I wonder, but uh, don't forget if you've got anything you'd like to share with us on Otherwise, where we talk women, you can uh, let us know, otherwise at safm.co.za. Otherwise on SAFM. 
Otherwise, it is Talking Women, and you might remember that uh, last week we were talking about women as leaders. Well, we're coming at leadership training from a slightly different angle today, in as much as we're talking to uh, talking about coaches who care. It's, it's a new initiative. It's been designed by a company called The Fresh Group, especially for the NPO sector. Well, to tell us more, we have on the line from The Fresh Group, Lauren Ratcliffe. Hi, Lauren. Hi there, Nancy. How are you? Excellent. Nice to have you with us, and thanks for taking time out. I know that you're busy in a workshop there. So, the, the Fresh Group, tell us about the Fresh Group. The Fresh Group is actually a strategic human resources consultancy, and yeah. it sounds quite fancy, but what we really do is people development. We do all things people-related in organizations, so from executive coaching through to training, facilitation, and it's really just about how do we shift and change a culture and organization and grow it into an amazing place for people to work. Okay. And that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Yes, yes. No, well, well described. Obviously not the first time you've done that. <laughs> but I think that you're taking a slightly different angle this time. You're looking at the NPO sector. Yes, we are. Um, about 10 months ago or so, the CEO of the Fresh Group, Rowan, had a very um, innovative idea, really. And um, it came about through our need and our want to give back in the South African society <clears throat> from a corporate social responsibility point of view. And it was also through all of the work that we do with leaders and in the non-profit sector as well as in the profit sector. And the idea was that we wanted to facilitate um, leadership within these organizations, non-profits in particular, because we realized that while a lot of non-profit um, leaders have got the passion, they don't always have the emotional and operational support to deliver in the organizations what they want to deliver. So the idea came about that we wanted to go out and we wanted to coach and support these leaders so that they can do better work in their organizations and then obviously have a better impact on society. And spent some time thinking about who we could partner with on this program and eventually we met with Investec and their corporate social responsibility sort of slant was very in line with ours, not, not only about you know, um, the money side of it, it's about well, what are we really doing to make a difference in South Africa and that's where we started the program and how it's grown today. Hmm, that's an interesting one, and a very, a very, um, a very timely one, I would say, because, you know, NPOs. I was going to say it's sort of professionalising NPOs, which isn't to say that NPOs aren't professionalised, but sometimes, as you say, the passion is there, but not necessarily the expertise. Um, yeah. And when you say we, they don't always have the emotional and operational support, I want to think, mm. oh, shame, you know. Certainly, certainly the emotional thing, it, it can be very emotional and quite difficult to, to proffer deep, you know, real direction and leadership in a situation like that. Yes, absolutely. Give us an idea of what some of the challenges, have you started the initiative already yet? Yes, we started it last week on Thursday. We had our first session and it was really, really exciting. We have over 55 people involved in the program. So that's, we've got about 34 non-profit leaders and we've got a number of coaches who are giving us their time pro bono in order to be part of this initiative and to help affect change in South African society. And um, what we realized is that this is such a needed initiative mm -hmm. at the moment. because We want to change the way that um, corporate social responsibility is actually done. We don't want it to just be about, you know, you give money and then nothing else happens yeah. from there. You know, in this particular model, we've got the coaches who are coming in to give back of their own free time because they want to do something good. And then you've got the NGO leaders who are trying to do something good, but they need some extra support so they're getting the coaching. Then you've got the partners, which is us, ourselves and Investec, who are both wanting to 
create our own corporate social responsibility, but in different ways. So you've got four different pillars of um, of the program where everybody's working together and yeah. everybody's needs are getting met so that yeah. you don't just have a one-way thing. You've got yeah. the various um, uh, partnerships working yes. together. It's an ideal coming together, really, isn't it? So everybody, exactly. it's a win-win-win. So in first sake, yes. have they come in on the financial side? I'm assuming that the 34 non-profit leaders are there for free? Yes, they are. Um, they are they've come in... And they are part of this program, obviously volunteered to be part of this program because mm. they are either in partnership with Investec or they're supported by them or they are benefiting in some way from Investec, so supporting them. But they have come in they're at no cost to themselves. So Investec is supporting, obviously, the operational sides of where the venue is and some of the, you know, the refreshment side of things and obviously some of the design for the program. But then the, the coaches are coming in and they are giving up their time for free. So everybody is giving something no cost. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, starting at the beginning, I would imagine you would have had to do quite a lot of listening to find out what the NPO, NPO NGO leaders are requiring, what their issues are. Absolutely, Nancy. We actually we did a whole pilot when we first got this idea, and we did it with three or four leaders to really try and figure out well, what are the issues that they face, what are their key challenges as leaders individually, and as well as what they face in their organisations. And what we found incredibly interesting was that there was this huge overlap across the board around needs and how they needed to be supported and the challenges that they face as individuals. And what we really tried to do then was to figure out, okay, how do we create this into a greater programme that can help serve this entire um, NPO society mm-hmm. organisation? And what know? are their challenges? What are their needs? Well, from a personal point of view, I think one of the biggest things is that they just don't feel they have anybody to hear them. They spend a lot of their time helping others around them, trying to be strong, you know, the leader of the ship, trying to do everything themselves. A lot of the time there's burnout, there's complete overload, there's frustration because they're desperately trying to keep things going and they feel that they're alone. So that's one of the, the key sort of individual um, needs that they all feel. Mm and challenges and then from an organisation point of view obviously it's getting the message out there it's funding challenges around funding it's not as easy as it was in the old days and um, they are constantly trying to keep their organisations alive and people to understand what they're trying to do and the change they're trying to create and those are I would say the key challenges that they face yeah and perhaps trying to keep the rest of the staff motivated um, yeah. you know and, and there let's start with the first one then this issue of um, them of the, there being no one to hear them trying to be strong overload burnout uh, you know the, the solution to that is to get some help and they may not have any money to get some help so how can you how can you help them help themselves when what they probably need is, is more funding well what we're trying to do through this initiative is to provide a platform for them to feel heard. So often what we find in our work is that purely just through talking through what you are challenged with, how you feel, you know, how you're able to cope on a daily basis and just having somebody there for a full hour at a time to listen to you and only you and what your needs are, that you really feel heard and refreshed actually afterwards because you feel like you've just left all this burden, you know, out and you're able to then process, okay, well, let's take a step back. Who is it that I need to be to be strong as a leader for this organization? Who is it that I need to, you know, be in order to face my next challenge? You know, what are the things that I actually need to now go and do? So really coaching in this sense is about 
getting people to understand where they want to go to and how they want to get there without telling them how to do it themselves. Because within us all, we have our own answers. Mm -hmm. And each of us are individuals, so we need to figure that out. And the coaching process facilitates that. So then, are you coaches? Are you then going to offer that? Will you be like um, a sort of like a sort of built-in therapist or a, or a support system? Will, will yes. They, okay. Hmm. So what it is about is that you know where therapy looks back in the past, and um, coaching looks to the future and says, okay, what are the goals that we are trying to create uh, as individuals and organisationally, and how do we get there? What type of person do I need to be? What skills do I need to learn about myself? How do I need to empower my team? So that's what it focuses on. And this program, how we split it up is that it's over 10 months. There are four group training sessions where everybody comes together. And there's a lot of um, foundational teaching for the leaders around self-awareness and self-management and organizational leadership. And then for the coaches too, we provide development for them around purpose and how do they work best with NGOs. And so each one of those full-day sessions has some sort of different flavor to it. And then in between that, we've partnered an NGO with a coach. Mm. They all have their one-on-one person that they can deal with in this partnership. And that is the intention is for the coach to support the leader throughout their journey over the next 10 months. Wow. So it's a multifaceted program. Yes, it sounds absolutely brilliant, well thought through. Uh, you know, and it will be interesting to see what the outcomes are you know, a year down the line, perhaps when the, all those training sessions have happened. Because it will be sort of like ongoing support. And I'm assuming that the person who, uh, the leader, his or herself, will then be able to sort of filter it down to the rest of the team. Just briefly, the funding is is more difficult um, because funding, as you say, doesn't get any easier. Solution that you have for that is what? I think, again, it's about trying to establish for the leader themselves, going back to the purpose. Like, what is it that I've been trying to do in this organization? Because I think often what happens is along the path of just trying to make things work, try anything and for them it's about going back to okay what is the the reason I started this organization or the reason that I came on board to run this organization you know what does that look like how do I need to move forward in the best possible way and it's helping them create action plans for themselves again without telling them what to do or how to do it that will then best serve their organization and what's fascinating is that we've um, we've put each Lead, leader with a thinking partner so while they've got their own coach they are connected with another organizational leader who they don't know in order for them to think into similar issues and challenges that they may have and therefore help to solve them so that's where we're looking at um, hopefully providing a platform yeah. for them to deal with funding issues as one example well lauren if i can say never mind mpo leaders i think everybody should have a thinking idea. Um, if anybody, are these countrywide? Are you going to be offering this service countrywide? At the moment, because it's like a, a, a mini pilot, I suppose, and we're doing it only in Johannesburg, Gauteng area. But our hope is that after the 10-month program has been completed in January next year, the Fresh Group and Investec will then relook at how we can bring this to other organisations around the country. Okay. Oh, it sounds like a great idea. Website, www.thefreshgroup.co.za. Thefreshgroup.co.za. Will they find all the info about Coaches You Care? Yes, there's information on Coaches You Care and there's also information on the Investec website under the CSI version of the website. 
Lauren Ratcliffe, thank you very much. Happy thinking, and uh, thanks very much thanks for sharing it. It's it's um, really good. Thanks for inviting me on the show, Nancy. Take care. Take care. Lauren Bye. Ratcliffe, she's with the Fresh Group. They're talking about their Coaches Who Care initiative, especially for NGO NPO leaders. Well, at the moment only in Cape Town, but do check it out. It sounds like a good idea. www.thefreshgroup.co.za. Thefreshgroup.co.za. <laughs> Join me, Hilton Tarrant, every weeknight at 6 for the SAFM Market Update with MoneyWeb. With breaking business news, expert analysis, investment insights and the story behind the story, we're helping you make sense of the markets and your money. That's the Market Update, weeknights right here on SAFM at 6. This Thursday on SABC3. Hi, I'm Danny Tambo. Watch me and my wife and family on Top Billions, South Africa's top show. And catch me as I have a bake-off with the one and only master baker, Eric Landman. I'm Danny Kay. And I'm Mrs. Kay. And they're taking a walk on the wild side. Then, the gorgeous Miss USA is coming home. And, of course, Jonathan from Top Billing gets the exclusive interview. Thursday, 8.30 p.m. only on SABC3. Otherwise, on SAFM. Otherwise, Talking Women here on SAFM, coming to you from sunny Johannesburg. What a joy. Well, also inspiring leadership of a sort, perhaps self-leadership would be a better way of saying it, was a presentation given recently called Education, Women Making Their Futures and Changing Our World. It was given by Dr. Amalaya Malka. She's a postdoctoral research fellow in communication management uh, the Faculty of Economic and Management Service, uh, Sciences at the University of Pretoria. And she gave the presentation to the 42nd Annual Academy of Marketing Science in Montreal, California. We've got her on the line. Hi, Amalea, may I call you that? Good afternoon, Nancy. Nancy, I think in, in light of the, the conversation that we're having with regards to women in education, I yeah. think from a, a, t- a title point of view, my title is a, a doctor, and it's uh, taken sort of 15 years of academic education to get there from a, a, a point of view. Um, so, yes, my title is, is doctor, but my name is, is Amalia Gondismal. Okay. And I self-correct. I think it must be Monterey, California, not Montreal, California. It is a conflict of, uh, of countries there. Amalia, then let me, let me, let's, let's start at the beginning with this. Education, women making their futures and changing our world. Education is the key. What was your thinking behind this? Well, looking at a number of facts, and I'll just take you through the, the process that we, we undertook when we were developing this study. We consider that we have a, a population of 52 million people in South Africa. Women account for the majority at 52%. We have a labor force of people between the ages of, of 15 to 64, uh, which effectively is 33 million. But in terms of our actual employed labor force, that reduces down to 13 million. And in terms of the composition there, we see a shift in our statistics where women reduce to only 44% and men to 56%. Another area of concern is that women actually occupy more low-paying positions. In fact, 82% of the the female labor force is in low-paying positions. Hmm. Another area which was also concerning is the fact that women only earn 77% of their male counterparts' salaries. And adding further to this, the Businesswoman Association did a 2011 census study, and what they identified was that women on JSE-listed companies only account for 4.4% of CEOs in South Africa. So not only are we losing women from the labor force, 
but women are bottom-ending in the employment pyramid. And I think this is a great concern, and the question is really asking why and how can we accept this um, when you consider four key points. Uh, so firstly, we have more women enrolled in higher education than men. So on recent data from the, the Council of Higher Education, they indicate that in total, um, our women enrolled in, edu in higher education account for a ratio of 58% versus 42%. And this is one of the key criteria in terms of education on promoting women to executive positions. So access to executive opportunities depends heavily on an individual's level of education. And if we look at, for instance, companies in, in headlines like Goldfields, if you go to any component on their, um, the composition of their board, you'll see that you have their, their information followed by their title and their education. So understanding that education carries a significant weight. The second area and key point is that we have a parliament which comprises of 44% women. And I must say, I'm particularly proud of the South African government's achievement in terms of having our, our ratio of 44% females, especially when you consider, uh, according to the likes of the Interparliamentary Union, we're ranked number eight in the world uh, based on our, our female composition on parliament. And if you consider that the USA only ranks at 78, um, with 17.8% uh, women on, on its parliament, and an interesting point to note that the leader uh, is an African country with Rwanda, which has 56 female yeah. representation. And the third key area is um, you know, the work which is done by, by Parliament, and that is the, the founding of the Women Empowerment and Gender Equity Bill, where, uh, which was passed last year, and we are looking at 50% representation and meaningful participation of women in decision-making structures. Um, but I think that there are obviously a, a long way to go in terms of uh, addressing the actual execution of policy into practice. And that is a point uh, which we'll need um, significant work on in terms of accelerating that change to establish firm timeframes and making things uh, compulsory uh, from a business point of view to, to comply. You know, in many ways, it's, it's no less controversial than our um, BEE mandate. And so if we look at these three key areas, they are really outside in external drivers. And the fourth area is more from an internal point of view, and that is dealing with our, our change agents, which is a reflection of, of women driving um, and occupying roles of prominence, being um, political positions, business, academic, media, sports, uh, we have, for instance, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, Joyce Banda, and Kosazana Dlamini Zuma, and um, women in media like yourself. You connect with your listeners on a daily basis emotionally, and this is part of being able to drive change through reflection of, of women in society and what they've achieved, and by being able to, to influence other people. So those were the, the sort of the, the four premises of, of the study. Yes, yes, it's a, it's, a, it's a lot of things, isn't it? And again and again we hear similar statistics and there seems to be such a conflict. I mean, whilst we have, it's wonderful that we've got 44% of women in government and it's wonderful that we're doing so well on paper and in so many areas, you know, the reality of it is that we have this very low uh, number of women in top positions and we also have this incredibly high rate of, of gender violence. So 
we're right between the two poles, aren't we? We are. And that's, as I said, it's having these four points that have to work in tandem. And particularly, it's, it's driving our interventions um, through components like the, the Empowerment and Gender Quality Bill. Because if we you know, it would leave everything at the status quo as it is, uh, that's in a, a few generations things would have worked themselves out. But really, to accelerate and drive that change, these acts need to be implemented and, and they need to have um, appropriate legislation attached to them to, to enforce and drive them forward. Yes, one does wonder how many generations we can wait. I was speaking the other day to the Dean of Gibbs, the Gordon Institute of Business Science, and uh, you know he was pointing out how many women are doing really well academically at Gibbs, um, but it doesn't sort of reflect in leadership, and he said it's just a matter of time. But you think to yourself, how long is that going to take? Amalia, we're going to ask you, if you don't mind, just to hold on for a moment because we're going to take a break for the news headlines, but I'd like to come back and maybe find out a little bit more about the way forward on this. Is that okay? Yes, sir. Super, thanks. Dr. Amalia Malka, she's with the University of Pretoria, talking about education, women making their futures and changing our world. It's 1.30, it's news headlines time here on SAFM with a stand-up. Otherwise, it is uh, talking women, and we're talking. We're going to be talking in a minute about free cervical cancer vaccination in South Africa for very young girls. Is it a good thing for your daughter? We're going to be talking to a gynaecologist obstetrician to give us his opinion. But right now, we've got uh, Dr. Amalia Malka on the line. She's with the Department of Business Management and uh, University of Pretoria, talking about education for women and making their futures, but also changing our world. So, Amalia, the way forward on this, I mean, you're, you're, you've, you've painted the picture for us. I suppose what we need to look at is now is what can we do? How can we accelerate things? Well, it's to continue with our interventions. So, firstly, we've, we've got the Gender Equity Bill, which is coming through and having, um, attaching to that compliance and insurances that businesses operate correctly so that we have our 50% representation cascading into the private sector too. Then there's other aspects such as the Millennium Development Goals and fulfilling their achievements. We also have various corporate initiatives being driven by corporates. For instance, Coca-Cola's 5 by 20, which is enabling the economic empowerment of 5 million women, entre- uh, 5 million women entrepreneurs across the value chain by, by 2020. We also have to address the numerous other stepping stones which, which we haven't had a time to touch base on, uh, such as our male-dominated society, uh, dealing with patriarchal issues and culture, addressing discrepancies in the workplace. Uh, in many cases, women are managing both their family lives as well as their professional lives. And we have a, a sort of stereotypical component of, of men possibly putting their careers first but from a point of view on women, it's all about family first. So it's adjusting to flexibility and, and different working conditions. But ultimately, it's about being able to have equal opportunities where both women and men are, are judged on, on the same criteria. And uh, if we consider from an education point of view, really education gives choices. And without education, there, there are no choices. Um, and one of the a very nice quote I came by from Boris Johnson of the, the UK in 2007. He said, there are far more female graduates coming out of our universities than male graduates. And in 30 years' time, when these people reach the peak of their careers, the entire management structure of Britain would have been transformed and, and feminized. So 
I think that's a very interesting quote, and looking at how transformation in society is possible and will happen, but education is the key driver. Um, and uh, putting that through from a, a perspective of, of not just about formal education, but understanding what our rights are and, and where we where opportunities lie in society. You know, I suppose that a lot of this, a lot of the success of women's uh, empowerment depends on women themselves. Interesting to hear what Boris Johnson said there. But you know, transformed and feminized. But you just wonder, will women stay on the same trajectory over the 30 years? Because very often, what happens, and I'm sure you will have seen this. Women get educated, they do very well, then they have families and children, and then they drop out, uh, willingly sometimes. And, and that seems to be where things change. But that's also about being given that choice, mm. not being obstructed by, by having the choice. If you choose to drop out, then you know, you, that, that's your right. But you have no barriers to progress if you choose to do so. And I think that is, that is the point that we have to yeah. look at from a societal aspect of of removing those barriers, uh, they, they're illusionary. We, we can overcome all of those barriers and, and boundaries. So we might not ever be looking at a complete 50-50 uh, in terms of leadership gender-wise. We might, we might never see that, but we would like to have the option to achieve it if we wanted. Yes, and I, I think that that, that is a, a long and a lengthy debate with, with multiple factors yes. to take in, into consideration. But ultimately, it's about having the, the perspective of choice um, and, uh, and not having an imposition and, and being told, that, well, actually, this is, this is where you belong and, and this is all you can do. Yes. But it's, it's opening, having, having a blue sky. Yeah, and it's a, a debate that needs to happen again and again and again. Just coming back to education, which is the key to the whole thing. That statistic about, was it 82% of low-paying jobs are taken by women? 82% of women, women are in, in Okay, 82% of women are in low-paying jobs. And education could change all that. Well, yes, because it gives you the right, to, if you think about it, your, your access to unskilled positions, you don't need an education to go and attempt to do those. But in terms of progressing and developing and taking on a, a stronger role, a managerial role, leadership roles, getting through to executive positions and directorship positions, that requires education. And at the minimum, it would be at a, at a bachelor's level if you, if you look at any of the, the job vacancies. And um, women strongly address that point uh, if we consider that 58% of our 2011 uh, enrolled graduates are women versus 42% men. So we're, mm. we're well on the way there. Um, but it's about looking at what happens within the employment sector itself and uh, for women to take advantage. Yeah. You know, won't it be interesting come the Millennium Development Goal uh, time, it'll be interesting to see just how well we've actually done come 2015. Yes, and those measures are, are actively in, in place now. There are a series of, of indicators um, that are tracking performances as, as we go along. And on one of the reports uh, from South Africa, incidentally, on the 2010 component, they mentioned that education is essential in order for women and girls to know and claim their rights. And uh, dealing with uh, four of the key Millennium um, Development Goals, one being um, universal primary education, the second, reducing child mortality, the third, improving maternal health, and, and the fourth, obviously, on um, promoting equality and equity between genders. Yes, education, education, and education. 
Dr. Amalea Malka, thank you very much. It's been fascinating, and once again, I think it's a debate that we'll probably be having again and again and again, and I think we can never hear it often enough. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Nancy. Take care. Bye. Dr. Amalea um, Malka is a professor, professor there at uh, the University of Pretoria. A very interesting set of statistics there. 82% of women are in low-paying jobs. I th- definitely think we need to do something about that. Listening to Otherwise, stay with us. Otherwise, on SAFM. Join hands with the government to commemorate Child Protection Week from the 27th of May to the 2nd of June 2013. Report incidents of child abuse on the Childline South Africa toll-free number 0800 You can also wear a green ribbon to show your support to protecting the rights of our children. The green ribbon symbolises life and growth associated with children. They need to be nurtured and conserved. Together, let's use this opportunity to speak out against child abuse and neglect and to act on child abuse wherever it may occur. Otherwise, on SAFM. And on the subject of uh, Children and Child Protection Week, otherwise we'll be broadcasting live from Child Protection Week in Durban on Thursday, so look forward to that. But I hope you can look forward to tomorrow. We're going to be talking. uh, It's our help desk tomorrow, and I look forward to you joining me on that one here in uh, Johannesburg. Well, from February next year, the government is going to start administering cervical cancer vaccines in schools to girls between the ages of 9 and 10. The objective being to prevent cervical cancer, which, as things stand, is apparently the most common cause of cancer-related death in South Africa. We have on the line Dr. Peter Cole. He's a healthcare practitioner specialising as a gynaecologist and obstetrician, and he's on the line to to give us an answer on that one. Is it a good thing for my daughter? Uh, Dr. Cole, thank you very much for your time. Great pleasure. Um, you know, simple answer, the cervical, free cervical cancer vaccination. Is it a good thing for my daughter? Not that I have a daughter, but generically, uh, is it a good thing for young girls? Well, it's, absolutely, it's an absolute total no-brainer. Mm. I think the advent, um, this all goes back quite a few years to the discovery um, that HPV, human papillomavirus, is the obligate cause of all cervical cancers. That was, um, that was discovered by a Professor Zerhausen in Germany, and he got the Nobel Prize for that. And after that discovery, we were able to develop a vaccine that prevents human papillomavirus infections. So we can effectively stop the vast majority of cervical cancers. And cervical cancer in Africa is still the biggest killer of women, the biggest cancer killer of women. So if we can prevent at least 80 or 90% of those through vaccination, we'll have a far, far bigger impact than spending a fortune of money trying to improve the cervical screening campaign. It seems very young, um, 9 to 10-year-olds. Is, is it not going to cause them any harm? No, it won't cause them any harm. It would probably be safe to give it even younger, but all the clinical trials were done. It's, like, it's a simple vaccine, um, very similar to many other vaccines that we give to little babies. So, you know, it just stimulates your immune system to produce antibodies that uh, prevent infection. There's no active virus in these modern vaccines. They um, just, the antigen, just the surface structure to stimulate your immune system, but there's no viral DNA um, in, uh, in the vaccine, so it can't cause any disease. Okay. Is it a one-off, or would they need to have it on? A, would it need sort of boosting every, I don't know, every couple of years? You know, we've got data up to about 10 years now, and up to 10 years it hasn't needed boosting. There are three injections. You have one immediately, and then one after one or two months, depending on which vaccine you choose, and then a third one after uh, five or six months later. 
Have there been any known side effects at all? You know, minimal side effects like you'd get from any vaccine, um, a little bit of soreness at the site of the injection, um, but really no serious, there haven't been any serious adverse events directly attributable to the vaccine. Has there been any um, resistance from parents? Because we've, you know, when we've spoken about it in the past on the show, a lot of parents have said, I'm just encouraging sexual activity in my preteen. What's your take on that one? You know, um, it's not my take. It's what, mm. what um, the research that's been done. They did um, a huge clinical trial just on that because there was some objection, very isolated in certain sectors. Um, the research was done and they showed quite conclusively that administering a vaccine at the age of 10 doesn't affect sexual behavior or sexual practice. And by sexual behavior, we mean promiscuity. And by sexual practice, we mean the practicing of safe sex using condoms. And it has no effect on either of those two. Yes, indeed. Um, just thinking, just thinking, though, you know, going back to uh, this, this being sort of enforced, will it be right? I mean, I'm not sure if you've got all the details here. Will it be across all schools in all I provinces? I don't have all the fun. I was just yeah. so thrilled to hear that the government was funding this vaccine. We, we were hoping for it and we were asking for it desperately. The fact that they're funding it is just absolutely wonderful. They'll have a far bigger impact, and I believe it will be very, very cost-effective. You know, basically for every 20 vaccines you give, you're saving somebody's life. Yeah. And the cost of 20 vaccines is considerably less than treating one patient with cervical carcinoma. So purely on a financial basis, it would be cost effective. On a human suffering basis, um, it's just going to save millions of lives. Just, just tell us, I, mean, I just read there that, you know, it's one of the, it's one of the most common causes of cancer-related deaths here in South Africa amongst women. What, what is the incidence? Do you know? Um, difficult to say. It's been estimated at around about 1 in 16 to 1 in 20 women um, in a, um, a non-screened population will die of cervical cancer. Goodness me. And the early warning signs are? There aren't any, and that's the problem. Okay. You need the only way to detect it or to prevent it up to now, up to the advent of the vaccine, the only way to prevent it is by regular cervical screening. Mm. Now, in private practice, um, I think most women do go for their regular pap smears. But in hospital practice, it's very difficult. There's, there, uh, there isn't an adequate organized um, cervical screening program in, in hospital practice. So those women are the women who are most at risk. So although everybody needs the vaccination, it's going to be most valuable in those people who don't have access to a good screening program. Yes, because I, I imagine that the cervical screening is quite a costly business, whereas the vaccination maybe, uh, you know, will prevent the necessity for it. Well, we still recommend screening. Yeah. You know, the vaccine won't prevent 100%. It prevents um, cervical cancers by um, HPV 16 and 18, which are the two most common causes of cervical cancer. There's also some cross-protection against some of the others, but overall we're looking at protection of around about 80%. So you still do need screening, but your risk is so, so much lower if you've had the vaccine. Also the risk of getting abnormal pap smears and needing biopsies and destructive procedures on the cervix become much, much less. So it's not just about the cancer, it's about preventing the HPV infection. Yes, yes. The profile of those 1 in 16 or 1 in 20 young women, uh, any, any particular, particular profile? I mean, is it hereditary as a starter? 
You know, it's like most things in life. One, your genes do predispose you to a certain extent. Um, very, very difficult sometimes to set up, to distinguish sort of um, uh, environmental and genetic because obviously environmental factors are likely to be the same in in, in an individual family. Yes. So environmental factors play a role, and acquisition of the HPV virus, uh, well, the HPV virus is the obligate cause of cervical cancer. So anybody who's more likely to be exposed to the virus would be at slightly greater risk. I suppose I'm thinking, you know, earlier I was talking about Angelina Jolie, who famously has had a double mastectomy, and her, probably quite rightly, her mother died of breast cancer. Yeah. Has, um, no, it's not. We don't have the same genetic, the so, same so clear-cut gene. Okay. Um, the BRCA genes don't apply to CA cervix. They uterus, ovaries, fallopian tubes, intra-abdominal tumors, breasts, but not specifically to, to cervix. Is it in any way related to sexual activity, just going back to the young girls who may or may not be sexually active quite young? Is it, is it, well, uh, you know, this is why the ideal time to give the vaccine is well before sexual debut. And that's why 9 and 10 is a good age, because it's well before sexual debut. At 9 or 10, I don't think a young girl is going to be, associate the vaccine with sexual activity. I don't think she'd even be thinking of it at that stage. So we want to give it well before sexual debut um, because it is ultimately a sexually transmitted disease. But it's important to note that it's not a disease that's confined to people who are promiscuous. It's a very, very common virus. 80% of people will acquire the virus at some stage of their lives. The vast majority will be able to eradicate it themselves and it won't cause any harm. But it's a very, very um, common virus. And uh, the fact that somebody has an HPV infection doesn't imply any sexual promiscuity on their behalf at all, and I think it's important to appreciate that. So it doesn't carry the same um, stigma as some other sexually transmitted yes. diseases may carry because yes. it's just so common. 80% of all women will acquire an HPV infection at some stage of their lives. Just going back to what you were saying about there being no warning signs, you know, once you've got it, you've got it. Uh, had you had some screening, you might have had some warning. What can be done about it once it's been identified or once it's been diagnosed? In the early stages, um, it can be cured with surgery. In the later stages, we rely on radiotherapy. How early is early and how late is late? Uh, in terms of, uh, well, we classify it as a stage one where it's confined to the cervix. Okay. And that's early, and the early stage ones, um, the stage, uh, you know, the early stage one cancers can be cured with surgery. The later stage one cancers often need radiotherapy. Yeah. So as long as it's confined to the cervix and not too big, surgery is successful. Um, if it's larger than a certain um, diameter, then one needs to rely on radiotherapy. So, uh, you know, you gave a round of applause or certainly a thumbs up for the government for suggesting this as of February next year, though we don't know exactly what the, sort of the, the extent of the rollout is. But from you, your advice to parents is don't I'd fight this. advice right now to parents who yeah. can afford it is get it done. Yeah. And, you know, they're only vaccinating, well, quite rightly, only vaccinating a certain age group. That doesn't mean that older girls won't benefit from it. Up until what age could a girl have it and it still be effective? And there's a lot of argument about it. I think, you know, they've certainly shown that women up to the age of 45 um, still have new acquisition HPV infections. So really and truly, any woman who's sexually active um, will benefit to some extent yeah. from the vaccine.
But then it's then, most effective yeah. in younger people, so the earlier you give it, the more effective it is. And that's why I think it's so important that the government is targeting the youngest yeah. age group rather than trying to catch up on everybody. There simply aren't enough finances for that. So hopefully very soon there will be a generation of protected young women. Dr. Cole, thank you very much. Sadly, we're out of time, but thank you very much for your advice and your uh, your specialist knowledge there. Thank you. Great pleasure. Dr. Peter Cole, healthcare practitioner, talking about free cervical cancer vaccinations. And the question, is it a good thing for my daughter? And the answer, clearly, from what he has to say, is yes. You've been listening to Otherwise. Up next, it's Shop Shop, the children's programme.